So tonight, so I'd like to talk about uh, really uh, letting go of everything that comes in the way of being awake. So, totality here. Uh, but I want to start with a, a, a little simpler piece here that goes directly to it. This is. Uh, from the Sutta Nipata, which has become uh, one of my favorite sort of pieces of poetry out there. That um, points directly at um, this uh, these possibilities. This is Badravu, Badravu's question. The student Brahman Bravadu spoke next. I have come, he said, to ask a question. Thirst breaker, wishless, free and wise, beyond time and home, life and pleasure, please, ocean crosser. For all the different people here who have come from different places to listen to your words, Tell us about the way that you have found and known. The master replied, There is, in taking things, a thirst, a clinging, a grasping. You must lose it. You must lose it altogether, above, below, around, and within. It makes no difference what it is you're grasping at. When a man grasps, Mara stands beside him. Therefore, the monks, realizing this should not not grasp at anything, being mindful, he should see the beings that are creatures of attachment as tied to the power of death. So tonight, uh, I want to just kind of, we've been working with uh, really finding the body and the breath and um, just this, and Julie last night, about just staying here, you know, not going anywhere. And uh, it's such a important part of our practice uh, to recognize it in this hall, this space, Uh, There is no place that's outside of this practice. Uh, As we sit, uh, this is, this is it. Uh, There's no place else to go. So usually what I do is uh, part of preparing myself for giving a talk is I usually try to conceive in my own mind how uh, a poem that uh, points to what I'm trying to um, work with here, with you. Um, so I'd like to read it to you as a kind of... A, not the Buddha's words, but uh, it is about this uh, grasping and this 
um, those things that cover uh, what is this wakefulness. Looking into this deep pool, staring at the reflections, saying, is this one me? Vomiting. Teachings say, stop looking at the reflection, look into the pool, down between the grasses. In one moment, this mask fades. The heart is known, looking straight into the pool. So Julie last night was uh, talking about uh, the of not going to Asia and traveling. I'm sort of the opposite. I've been kind of the sadhu dharma bum. Uh, this uh, kind of constantly climbing another mountain somewhere else. And after uh, years of practice there, I've probably been there about four and a half years and back to the States once, and, um, I was in Dalhousie, which is up about 8,000 feet in the Himalayas. And uh, I had spent a, I was doing a six-week retreat there. And the last 10 days, I uh, had the fortune of being uh, asked to stay in this little hut that uh, the mayor of Dalhousie owned. And it was a small little room, and it had, um, I just had my kind of sleeping bag there and my sitting stuff. And there was one window that looked out into the forest with sort of bars on it, which sort of keeps the monkeys out and other intruders or beings. And on the other side, there was uh, these bars, and they looked out on the, on the Himalayas and the snow caps. And I'd been sitting for uh, some time, so when I finally went there, I would sit long hours, and it was so peaceful, and it was so quiet. And I wasn't at that time uh, doing much walking meditation at all. I would uh, walk in the evenings for a short time, actually just in the room. And I spent my time, if there was free time, I would just look out the window at the mountains. And it was far enough away from sort of the, the um, hustle and bustle of Asia that I was able to really begin to uh, feel not only the peacefulness inside me, but also outside me. And as I sat, I, um, I'd sit for long periods of time, and uh, it was so, such joy. 
uh, and happiness and kind of uh, stability uh, in my practice that time. And as all things, you know, they arise, they're there for a while and they pass away. So at this point, my teacher, uh, S.N. Goenka, was in Benares at going at the Burmese Vihara. So I decided, okay, uh, I would go there and there was going to be a 30-day retreat there. And I left and I stayed. I had this great stability of sort of going through India and I remember going through Delhi and uh, going to eat my, kind of having my mango lassis, uh, which is kind of a, a mango yogurt drink and uh, sort of variety of curries and uh, make it on to Benares, to this Burmese Vihara. What I didn't know was that the Burmese Vihara had been built some time before, and now there was the railroad station that was right near the Burmese Vihara. <laughs> and so I came there to find uh, more of the same, of this peace and quiet, and to be with my teacher and... Um, I come to a deeper uh, understanding in my practice. Well, I think it was the second night I was there, maybe three, four o'clock in the morning. One thing about Benares is it's uh, the city where, uh, with uh, the Ganga there, that people come and they bring um, their relatives who have died, and, and it's uh, a great sort of uh, blessing to bring them there and uh, have their bodies um, burned. So early in the morning, probably three or four o'clock, you know, the train pulls in and then there's this wailing going on out there. And it's my first clue that this is not going to be the retreat I had (laughs) anticipated whatsoever. And so the following morning then, uh, maybe at three, four o'clock then, you know, then sort of the speakers started going on at the train station and Hindi music started playing. And um, then the hawkers uh, were outside the gates. And uh, then the mayhem of India started to come into being. And here I was, and I was in this very still place. And I went to sit, and every bit of aggravation I had, you know, uh, just came up, and and it's sort of the... the, um, uh, insensitivity of the world and how it is in some way. <laughs> and I've been thinking this because in the interviews I, I hear, you know, uh, so much about, you know, it's whether it's doors closing or someone coughing or, uh, you know, these huge dramas that are going on. And I go, <laughs> I go back to this time. And what I realized was after a time that this, was, this is about the practice. You know? uh, that suddenly there would, the uh, kind of yogi mind, uh, this, these things would come up uh, out of my um, moments that would cause these tremendous uh, sort of... Um, you know, we had... Uh, Robert was talking about sort of... Uh, this was more... Vipassana vendettas uh, to conditions, causes and conditions. It, 
it was one of the greatest retreats uh, because I began to watch this incessant part of myself that said the conditions are not right. You know, over and over again, I, this was a case where it was easy, easy to blame. Um, but also in that there is a choosing. Uh, and this choosing is uh, what I read from the Sutta Nipata about uh, this that causes the craving and the clinging for something different than, than that's here. And so I tell this story just because at that point I began to, maybe the first time in many years, I began to understand uh, what um, this practice is aiming at. I think of it as like a pond, a pool. And we, we come to this practice, and, and uh, the practice in some ways is so simple. I think we could even make it even simpler than it is in some ways. That I see us come and we sit down, and there's this practice of stopping, uh, which we've all kind of uh, come to retreat. Quote, retreat is just simply stopping. In the practice itself, there is this kind of pool in front of us that is kind of our experience of how things are. And our, um, this kind of wanting, uh, this uh, and not wanting and uh, not seeing clearly, we're sitting there stirring up with our stick this pool all the time. And then all this muck is there and we say, oh, we want to see clearly, you know, as our wants and our uh, aversions and keep just stirring this up. And the practice in this way is simple. It's just sort of grabbing the hand and pulling the stick out of the water. And so much of it first is just this retreat and coming here the stick is pulled out of the water. It's part of how this whole place is set up uh, to take away the distractions so that we can see uh, into this pool. The thing that happens, it's sort of uh, once that top layer, as you've all come, sort of settles and we sort of go through the immediate stories and uh, the uh, kind of the the baggage that we bring in with us, uh, we start to settle and go down. And two things that happen here: one is in the settling. Um, when the body uh, is still, uh, and one. Uh, goes to really the simplest of simple things is right below that threshold of uh, constant movement uh, is this primary object, uh, this breath that Eugene was pointing towards is anapana. And it's connected what? It's connected to the body. 
So this stilling, this stopping, this quieting, allows uh, the body and the breath to settle. As we do that, slowly the mind, as it drifts here and there and comes back occasionally, and uh, it begins to rest more and more uh, on just the here and now. And sometimes it's the breath, sometimes it's just the body. Uh, there is uh, the recognizing of being pulled or pushed. Uh, there is um, uh, some letting go of the stories and the thoughts themselves. And we begin to get this really uh, pleasantness that comes from retreat, uh, stability of mind uh, and concentration that gives us confidence, it gives us strength, it gives us a sense of joy and lightness of body sometimes, and of uh, happiness and equanimity. And so we drop down. It's almost as like an elevator going down, level by level. But sometimes the question is, is just staying in this place when we've dropped down, which is such a, um, it is um, such a healthy and pleasant state. Uh, Is it enough in this practice? Uh, Does it Um, bring the wisdom that we're here to learn. And what I find is this practice uh, being a really purification practice in its way that every time we go a little deeper, uh, that when we drop down uh, into a more settled and um, restful, in a sense, place, And that dropping down, we sort of stir up the mud at the bottom. And this mud suddenly comes over us. And we say, oh, my practice has fallen apart. I'm no longer uh, uh, in this place of uh, stability and of uh, pleasantness, of um, the happiness of practice. And yet, when this mud comes up, uh, we've sort of held off. Robert was talking about sort of these difficulties that, or hindrances and stuff that actually we're able to push away during that time. But then they come up and they come back. And they come to teach us. And with the steadiness as we stay here, then it's really to begin to penetrate uh, the, this 
uh, craving for and against experiences that happen. Uh, and we have these possibilities in those times. And I know sometimes it's, you know, it's discomfort of the body that uh, we come and, you know, knees, backs, uh, necks, uh, old injuries, um, uh, just staying still, uh, is maybe the first line of where we can apply uh, this wisdom. We're not going anywhere. We're not really getting anything here. You know, it's really just noticing. And in that noticing, uh, you choose. You choose what you do with that. Uh, you can say, "Oh, that noise is distracting me. It's not a good thing." Or, you know, if only. You know, the manager had done it this way, or this had been set up this way or that way. This is constant. Um, somehow saying, this is not enough here. You know. If it was different, it'd be better. Uh, so I come to this uh, most important, uh, what experience, that we have to completely and utterly, in a sense, surrender to what it is. And it ha- it's simply this word dukkha, which I'm not sure of um, how translatable sometimes. There's so many aspects to it. Um, The Buddha. There is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, which keeps us unfree, keeps us bound on this cycle, cyclic wheel of becoming. That one thing is this truth of suffering, this truth of dukkha. And I think so much of what what is it that, how, how is it that I learn this? And one part of me is, yes, uh, I find the subtleness and I, I enjoy that. And uh, there's great happiness here and joy and a uh, sense of balance and equanimity that's available. Uh, there's also the penetrating of this uh, truth. Uh, of, of suffering and dukkha and, unsatisf- and satisfactoriness. And I remember when uh, we first came back from Asia, one of the things was it seemed like um, it was one of the things not talked about so much, you know, sort of uh, skirted on some level. 
But I think in some ways that we really have to investigate this in us, and it has a, a huge impact uh, when uh, you're willing to, uh, you sit here and uh, the first kind of experience is there's kind of the gross, I think of the pond and there's sort of all these logs on top that are there and it's kind of the gross experience of it and uh, we come in and we know those. And hopefully we uh, allow those to be seen and move on. But then there is simply this flow within us uh, that is uncontrollable. It is like this river of constant movement uh, that sometimes I imagine uh, being in this river. And uh, my tendency uh, constantly is to swim to the shore and try to grab a hold of a root and hold on and stop. You know, and somehow that will bring me comfort. Uh, that will do it for me. And certainly at certain points, um, that holding on um, has its own uh, degree of, of pleasantness. But one of the truths here is, uh, if anything stays long enough, it will turn into its opposite. You know, and you can eat chocolate, and if you love it, and it's okay, but if you keep eating it, uh, it will turn into its opposite. That's just the way it is. And so part of that is our wisdom of learning that uh, there may be another way of dealing in this flow, of being this river of, uh, of you know, sub, uh, just particles in motion constantly. And that we have no uh, really control over. You know, it's wonderful because uh, in this practice of uh, looking directly uh, at the kind of uh, causation, the causes of uh, suffering, I wrote down a few of them here this afternoon I thought would uh, uh, exemplify uh, uh, in a simplistic way how we do this. And, you know, the first one is always, it seems to be, blame someone else, you know. And, uh, you know. It's simplistic, but it is this practice of turning outwards and seeing... um, uh, that uh, we, you know we're kind of helpless. We have no control over it in some way, and so uh, we point and we blame. So that's one strategy we use with it. Another one is we we run away, and I know this one really well. You know, I spent many years. Uh, becoming a professional at this. And even in the practice, I found uh, the first many years, 
uh, leaving this culture in the 60s and even in this practice, that somehow I could uh, transcend and get out of what's here. And my story, and my parents, and all my relationships. Fortunately, uh, it is uh, a practice that turns one back towards what's true and what's here. And so... Uh, from a place of uh, this desire to transcend, uh, it was turned back on myself. I had to own my pain. And certainly there was, um, which is unavoidable, as as we know, is the body itself and its pain. And uh, not even uh, a Buddha that uh, is here escapes that. But then there was so much uh, of this, really the psychological pain of, um, of misunderstanding, um, of wanting to be somebody else. No. So a third of these is, is uh, also another kind of uh, simplistic thing is just um, that wanting to be somebody else uh, that's somehow uh, not good enough that there is uh, this thing called self-pity and uh, which a lot of times really I know for myself just kind of not believing to be enough uh, which really uh, holds one kind of in a uh, depression Um, And what's funny is we, uh, it's sort of like that movie Groundhog Day, you know, we keep repeating uh, these kind of patterns over and over again of how uh, we keep uh, stopping ourselves from being and seeing this freedom. I guess the fourth of these I was looking at was how uh, we identify with our suffering and uh, make it up to be who we are. So uh, it's, it becomes an identity that holds us in captivity even when a lot of things point to that's not true. But somehow uh, it's the best we can do is just to hold on to it. So those are sort of the things that uh, I was exploring that happen around this. Um, These condition responses. And it's true, we have to repeat them many times. But what's so marvelous here 
what is uh, ultimately uh, what we're doing here is not about the suffering. The suffering is something we carry in and kind of uh, what sort of uh, it kind of comes with uh, the zafu and the zabutan and the body and the chair and uh, your history. But we're here to transform it, uh, to uh, see the value, uh, why these teachings keep coming. Uh, what is it here to teach you? And so it brings me to uh, what. I wanted to point at specifically tonight, which is compassion. And I can't talk about compassion without talking directly about the suffering. Because it is actually the awareness and our willingness to fully experience it uh, it's not something we can think about. It's not something we make up, or you know, it's something that um, I was thinking about thankfulness, of being thankful for my suffering, and that uh, that which has um, helped point me towards freedom has actually been my suffering. And so, in a sense, it is about a thankfulness. You know, whether it's uh, anger or fear or um, kind of uh, self-obsession or all uh, those things that entrap me are also those things that uh, when they're turned to their opposite uh, are really the jewels uh, of, of this practice. Tonight, I wanted to point at compassion because it is the thing that's linked to suffering. And so much of what we're doing here in this quieting and, and kind of our reactivity to, uh, even though this is a, this is a pristine, uh, I think I'm just so thankful to Spirit Rock and all the community and, and uh, the kind of all the, the um, support that's happened so that we could sit so quietly. You know, uh, I can't think of any place in the world, any place in the world, where this, con- where this container is so tight and so well taken care of. And yet, and yet, you know, you all look so peaceful and quiet and, you know, there's really this uh, sense of awe sometimes when I come in this room and sit. 
and uh, the feeling of it. And yet, there's part of me knows this is a garbage dump, you know, and there's like <laughs> all this stuff coming up and being felt and pain and tears and, you know, stories and... Um, the dukkha. And yet the other piece I trust so much in this practice is that when that's experienced and known, there is no other thing but the sure release of the heart. I'll tell a story here. I grew up in, uh, mostly in Europe, and when I was about 10 years old, uh, we lived in Switzerland. My uh, parents, um, uh, we moved for about four, four or five months to Luxembourg. And we went there, and, and uh, my father had gone first and found this apartment in a part of near the old city. And it was a three-story apartment. And... Uh, uh, sort of being taken away from my friends, I was very alone there. And there, it was a three-story apartment, and we lived on the first floor. And then the second floor was a, a young uh, man who became very much a friend of mine. And, uh, and then on the third floor was oh, this wonderful woman. And uh, she had um, her husband... And my first experience with them was I would go to the garden and there were strawberries and rhubarbs and she really taught me about gardening at 10 years old and I would go and hang out with her. And she was in her maybe 30 years old. And her husband uh, at 15 had um, uh, gone to Auschwitz. And... um, He was upstairs and something had happened in that period with his back. And so he couldn't get out of bed. And they have been, uh, it's a beautiful story, they had been lovers. And he had been taken away. And uh, when he came back, he was uh, crippled. And she married him and just took care of him. You know, it was a, a, such a sweet, uh, one of those uh, sweet stories. And... Um, And she would have me go upstairs, and I would work in the garden, and then she'd say, oh, you have to come, you know, hang out with Andre. So I would go upstairs, and I would sit, and uh, he was, oh, maybe 30 years old, but extremely frail, and, and um, probably not here that much longer. Uh, but I would go upstairs, and I would sit with him, and, and she would give me old maltine and, you know, make rhubarb pie or something, and... And, uh, and then I would sit with him, and uh, he would like to hold my hand. And I remember times I would look at him, and I knew I didn't know. You know, um, I didn't know about what that was what he, who he was in some ways. 
But there was a sense of kindness in this man and a sense of resolve about who he was and his experience um, that moved me uh, in such a, a really deep way that I didn't understand. I was only 10. Uh, so all it was was this remembering of this connection. You know, I mean, the things I remember was particularly about the garden and about this connection. And I didn't know so much about suffering then, but I really understood that this man's compassion from his suffering could go through me and be known. And so many times when I would get caught up, this has happened to me on retreat, I would remember holding his hand. And that um, our willingness uh, to touch uh, those parts in ourselves, you know, uh, and sometimes maybe these are just universal. I think sometimes a person comes and they sit and uh, they begin to notice, uh, they settle, they know just the out-breath. This, um, the passing away. And there's no way to hold anything here. There's nothing possible to hold. And in that passing, there is this opening of the heart. And sometimes there are tears which have no story. No. Just part of a process here. Or maybe just simply of Grieving that we can't, it can't be the way we always thought it would be, you know, all our stories. And then it comes back to what we've been talking about these last few nights. I notice when I allow that noticing the passing, this thing that we are born and dying all the time, in that recognizing of uh, the kind of um, what this is a dying process, that in noticing that, then there is this tremendous release and relief, and one can sit here in the body, not wanting to be somewhere else even if it's discomfort. That's the possibility. So... 
dissolving in this flame of stillness. So when we allow that suffering to uh, not to be held, but to move through and to let it touch the heart and for the body to know um, uh, there's no place left to run. There's no pointing away from yourself. There's no even self-pity or holding the suffering in any way, releasing those four I talked about. That is to get, move those things uh, that allow us to see that here, now, uh, the freedom is not somewhere else. Uh, It is in our capacity to simply rest in this place. Uh, it's why we emphasize the body, simply because that's where we experience the relaxation. Well, some of us do. Uh, it's not also. None of this is. But at some point when that uh, sense of separateness is broken down. Uh, and we own all of it. Then we come to what is really the heart of practice. And the heart of practice here is really about this trust. And it's not about trusting in anything or anyone or any view or opinion or how we are or making, putting on more mass. It's about trusting that this here, this experience now is enough. You know, not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, but it's enough. There's a wonderful Rilke uh, kind of poem about the swan that uh, waddles on the earth and kind of um, seems so awkward. But then when it goes and it steps into the flow, into the river, the flow of the water, uh, when it puts its body in in, and allows the water to hold it, Uh, then there is a majestic, really this this Buddha nature then, that you're being held like that swan in this water of constant flow and change. And freedom is something you're choosing moment to moment. Uh, 
this is, this is your possibility here, is to choose that. So I think I'd like to end here with, this is from David White, it's called The Journey. Above the mountain, the geese turn into the light again, painting their black silhouettes on an open sky. Sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens. So you can find that one line already written inside you. Sometimes it takes a great sky to find that first bright, indescribable wedge of freedom in your own heart. Sometimes with the bones of the black sticks left when the fire has gone out. Someone has written something in the ashes of your life. You are not leaving. You are arriving. So let's just sit for a moment here. This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 6, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.